All right. Well, this presentation tonight, the second presentation, is really going to connect very well with our first presentation. Um, we're going to look at the truth about hell. What is hell? Where is it? When is it? How long is it? These are the type of questions we want to get answered from Scripture. Um, and uh, we're going to do that. And uh, I think that our first presentation is really going to serve as a foundation for what we're going to discover now in our second study. And so uh, let's get right into it. You know, when I ask the question, or when, when, I, when we do this little word play, you know, you say a word and people have to, you know, uh, say their first, what, what came, first came up in their mind when you say that word. Um, if I would say the word hell, many people would have kind of a picture of, of this, what I have here on the screen, like, you know, some kind of, you know, pool of, of, of flames and fire where uh, the devil is in charge and where people are... are suffering, being tortured throughout the ceaseless ages of time. Um, now, this idea um, really has caused a lot of people to turn away from God because they cannot um, bring together this concept with a loving God, with the, with the God that is love and that actually uh, cares for us and, and has, is like a father figure to us. And so a lot of people have turned away from, from, from God because they, they, they find it incompatible, incompatible the idea of everlasting torment of hell with God is love, which the scripture tells us that he is. The scriptures say God is love, not that he's just loving as an attribute, that he is actually love itself. And so um, this idea of, of God is love is uh, a scriptural truth that is important for us to understand, and that's why we must investigate then if it really is, um, if this really, this teaching about hell that is predominant within Christianity today, if it actually has its roots in Scripture, in the Bible. And uh, what I love about the Bible is it's just so plain. You know, you can go and actually find out these things. We don't have to be left in doubt uh, regarding uh, the nature of God and the character of God and the teaching about hellfire. So let's go to the scriptures. And again, the scriptures are going to peel back the layers of tradition that have been accumulated and placed upon the word of God uh, throughout many centuries. And that's why we first of all just want to look at the word itself. Now, the word hell appears in the Old Testament and in the New Testament quite a number of times. Um, in the Old Testament, the word hell is translated 31 times from the Hebrew word Sheol, Sheol, which simply means the meaning of the, na of the name Sheol, the word Sheol, is grave or place of the departed. So immediately when you look at the, at the very uh, word itself and the meaning of the word in the original language, it kind of already gives us a different picture here. When the Bible talks about hell in the Old Testament, it talks about Sheol, and that, that word was translated to the word hell in the English language. But if you, if you just looked at the meaning of the word Sheol, it really means the place of the departed ones. It didn't indicate or um, you know, explain anything about some fiery pool uh, where people are um, suffering throughout the ceaseless ages of time. Uh, in the New Testament, there are two Greek words that are translated as hell, the word Hades and the word Gehenna. Now, the word Gehenna is interesting because it was actually taken 
from a place that they called Gehenna, which was a dump just outside of Jerusalem. So just outside of Jerusalem, there was this dump place where they would basically just throw all their garbage. And uh, in order to get rid of that garbage, they would actually burn it. So just think about this. You have a large city like Jerusalem, and outside of the city is Gehenna, the place of burning, where they would burn all their trash. And because they had continual new trash, there was a continual fire that was burning in order to get rid of this trash. And so there was a continual fire, and this word, Gehenna, is connected in the New Testament to describe this place of hell. So just looking at the original words and their connections with events of the past already kind of help us to understand a little bit better where this is heading, yes or no? Amen? Helps. It helps, right? Now, um, let's take a look at then the three main questions concerning hell. And these are the three questions we want to answer. When is hell? Where is hell? And how long is hell? Okay, when, where, and how long? Because I'm not up here tonight to say that there is no hell because Scripture teaches that there is a place that is called hell. We use that language in, 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 the, in the English um, the word, and, and as we go back, we, we see that there is a place that the Scripture declares, that the Scripture describes uh, where the wicked will be destroyed. So I'm not saying that there is no such a place. The Scripture teaches that there is such a place, but we must ask the very simple and yet very important questions, and that is when is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen? And how long? And, and I think that third question is especially of importance because, again, how do we reconcile in our minds the idea of an eternal hell with the character of God being love? So, so how long is actually hell? So these are three questions we want to uh, answer. And I'm going to right away give away my premise here, which will kind of come back in the end, and that is this. Hell is a place where God destroys sin. You see, sin is the problem in our universe. Sin is what has caused misery, suffering, pain, death. Sin entered when mankind disobeyed the explicit word of God. And so Christ came into this world to take our sins upon himself so that he can give to us eternal life. Right? Sin is the problem. Sin is what needs to get rid of. And hell is a place of destruction. And it is to destroy sin. Now, what Scripture shows is that those that hold on to sin and don't let go of it are destroyed with sin. And that's a very sad thing, but it's a very real thing. When God wants to get rid of sin, first, I mean, for, for, for God, as we're going to discover, it is all about destroying sin. And it is sad when someone holds on to sin so much that they're destroyed with it. It is a sad thing. It was never, never um, in the purpose of God. Um, and so, but, but how does he destroy it? And, and, and this, uh, this is where we get into these questions, when, where, and how long. Now, in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, Basically, in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, the last four chapters of the Bible, we have a, chrono a, a, chrono a chronology of the final events from the second coming of Christ basically rolling into eternity. 
And so what the Bible portrays is Revelation 19. And we don't have time now tonight to go into the depth of Revelation 19 or 20 or 21 and 22. So I'm kind of giving you uh, the bigger picture here. Uh, By the way, on our last presentation, which is coming Sunday, we will look a little bit deeper at this prophecy Um, of the thousand years in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. But for now, I just want to give you kind of the big picture here. And what you find in these last chapters of the book of Revelation is that Christ comes back in Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. Revelation 20, we have a period that is mentioned of a thousand years in which the righteous are reigning with God in heaven. And then after those thousand years, or what is many times referred to as the millennium, which comes from the Latin words mila, thousand, annium, years, thousand-year prophecy. After that, Revelation uh, 20 goes on to describe the final battle that will take place when Satan is released for a short time, and there's this final battle that takes place. Um, It's also referred to as the Battle of Gog and Magog. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. We'll talk more about that on Sunday evening, and then Revelation 21 and 22, you read about God restoring this earth. He restores the new, a new heaven and a new earth, and then it goes on to describe that there will be no more death, no more suffering, no more crying, all tears will be wiped away, there will be no more death. Amen. He will recreate everything, and then you can just read, I mean, chapter 21 and 22. If you're, if you're ever depressed, pick up your Bible and read those chapters. Because those chapters, just, they describe the beautiful, beautiful reward that is awaiting those that put their faith in Jesus. It, it describes the city of Jerusalem. It describes um, uh, just, just the beauty of that city and the beauty of God and the beauty of, of everything that we can experience in that world that he has prepared for each one of us. So the book of Revelation, dealing with last day events, especially the last four chapters, give us a, uh, an overview, chronological picture of Christ coming back, a thousand-year prophecy, um, a thousand years of the righteous being in heaven. Um, at, that's when Jesus has come back. That He takes them with him to heaven. They were there a thousand years, and then we co- they come back to this earth, and there's this final battle, this battle of Gog and Magog, and then there's a final destruction. Now, we're going to go more into detail of this prophecy, as I mentioned on Sunday. But for tonight, what we want to understand is where is hell? Revelation chapter 20 portrays the final destruction of sin, the burning up of sin and, sadly, sinners that have held on to sin. That is removed, this final destruction and removal of sin is described in Revelation chapter 20 And it takes place on this earth. Right after that, you're launched into chapter 21, and we have the description of the new earth where there is no more death. Now, if the new earth is created, just imagine this for a moment, okay? You want to be there, amen? How many of you want to be there? (laughs) I want to be there as well. So can you imagine being on the new earth? It is all recreated. God himself says there's going to be no more. God himself wipes away the tears from our eyes. No more death, no more crying, no more sin, no more suffering. All is beautiful except, according to the modern teachings of Christianity today, except this little portion somewhere where people are burning for the ceaseless ages of time. And maybe you even know someone that is there. And so throughout eternity, you know that your friend or your loved one that didn't accept Christ, that didn't accept God, is burning 
forever and ever and ever, and you're telling me that there will be no tears in heaven if that is the case? And you can actually enjoy heaven knowing that there are people in hell tormented throughout eternity? My friends, this is a tradition that has crept into Christianity along with many other traditions, and it doesn't find its place in Scripture. The Bible teaches, yes, there is hell, and it is a destruction of sin and sinners, and it takes place on this earth after the thousand years, Revelation chapter 20, and it is final, it is a final removal of all these things so that when God recreates the earth, he recreates it, and there is no more sorrow and no more pain. Amen? You know, the devil, the, God is not going to say to the devil, well, you know, you can just continue to live and I'll put you in charge since, you know, you, you can't be in charge of heaven anymore, but you can be in charge of hell. You know, God doesn't keep the devil on his payroll so that he can just, you know, continue to torment people throughout eternity. I mean, this is a middle age, dark age tradition that has crept into the church. It actually steams even from the artwork of the Middle Ages and Dark Ages where they would have paintings. Have you ever walked into an ancient cathedral where you have the paintings of heaven and hell? Have you ever seen that? A couple of, um, couple of months ago or last year actually, I was on a preaching tour uh, throughout Europe and I was in the country of Romania and I was teaching there at a university and uh, actually some of the students, they took me out to one of these, um, one of these uh, monasteries to just look there and I find it very interesting wherever I travel, I always like to to, you know, to learn things about the culture and the religion of those places. And so they took me to this monastery, and, and, and a couple of guys, we walked into this monastery, and right as you walk in, there was a, a, a big painting on the wall on one side, and then you had the entrance, and there was a big painting on the other side, and, uh, and then you had the throne and this God figure painted right above, and on one side it was a portrayal of heaven, and the other side was a portrayal of hell. I could not believe my eyes as I looked at that portrayal of the, 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 the picture of, of hell there. It, it was really, really depressing to look at. I mean, there were people there that, you know, were ha- hanging upside down and being burnt. And they were like, you know, being with the pitchfork. And you said these little demon creatures that were there just tormenting them. They were like hanging there and they were fastened to all these things and just burning. And, and I mean, this is what people actually believe. And that actually God allows that to happen, that God planned that for the punishment of, of, of sinners. And, and I thought to myself, how on earth, what is the picture of God you get when you look at that? Certainly, there, there, there was, there's a fear that is created in human beings because if this is what God is like, then, then, then we're not motivated by love, but we're motivated by fear, amen? And that's not the motivation that God Wants. God wants to motivate us by his love. And so this is a deception that has come in and that is causing people to not see God as he really is. And, and here in Scripture, we have a picture of, of the final destruction, but it is the final destruction that takes place on earth after the thousand years, and it is an event that happens, and then it's over. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more torment, and there's no more fire of hell that is continuing to burn. That is all done away with. Now, let's go to a couple of scriptures uh, that make this clear. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, and here you you read about this final destruction uh, after the millennium. 
It says, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Basically, what the teaching, what, what the teaching of Scripture, and I'm giving you kind of the big picture here, Details come back on Sunday as we look at this prophecy of the millennium. But basically, Christ comes back. Those that are living, together with those that have resurrected in Christ, meet the Lord in the air. They're taken to heaven. They spend a thousand years there. They come down to this earth afterwards. There's a second resurrection, basically, of all those that have rejected Christ. And then the prophecy tells that they come up against the believers, but then fire comes down from heaven and devours them. This is the picture here of, of, of hell, the fires of destruction. And what does it say that the fire does? It says it devoured them. Now, that means that it basically, they're done away with, right? It's over. It's not some continual fire that is burning throughout the ceaseless ages of time. Revelation 21 verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There will be no more pain. Very clear from Scripture. Now, let's look then at the question, how long? When is it? After the thousand years, in the very end there. So in other words, it's not going on right now, heaven fi uh, hell fire. It's not going on right now. Because this connects right with our first teaching this evening. What happens when a person dies? They're unconscious in the grave. Okay, so they're not burning someplace right now. There is a hellfire of destruction, but it's in the very end. Okay? Where? It's going to happen on this earth. This earth is, going to, is where sin started. This earth is where sin is going to end. Okay? How long then? Because this is the real question when it comes to the nature and character of God. Now look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1 to 3. We're going to look at a, a number of verses in order to, um, to understand and to, to, to comprehend uh, the length of hell. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze. This is talking about the final day of the judgment of God being poured out upon those that have rejected his invitation of mercy, and they will become like chaff, the Bible says. Chaff is also like ashes. And by the way, ashes don't burn. Okay? Ashes don't burn says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, they'll, they'll be done away with. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be, what? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Basically, what God is saying through Malachi is there are going to be two groups of people, those that have believed in God and put their faith in God, those that are wicked and have rejected his invitation of mercy. And then it says that in that great day, those that have rejected him will be judged, they will be burned off, they will be like the chaff, they will become ashes, and then the, the, the righteous will be victorious in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. Now, ashes don't burn, Right? I mean, think about this. This is very simple, my friends. When you take a match, and I, ask, and, I, and I light the match here. Sometimes I do that, actually. I didn't take it with me tonight, but sometimes I'll even do that in a public presentation just to make, the fa make, make it clear. If I light the match, just imagine it here, and I let it burn, how long is that match going to burn? 
as long as there's something to burn. Right? So if I, if I take it like this and it starts burning and then I carefully take it on the other side like that and I let this part burn, it's going to burn as long as there's something to burn. And then it's ash and it's over. This is exactly what Scripture is revealing. The wicked will perish through the fires of heaven to destroy sin, but this will not be something that will continue forever and ever and ever and ever because sin will be done away with. God is not going to allow the sinner sin to perpetuate by the internal existence of the sinner. Are you with me? And so it will be like ashes. Now, Jude chapter 7, look at what it says. Jude is just one chapter, um, right, the book right before the book of Revelation. And look at what it says in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and per perversion. They serve as a what? Example. And that's a key word. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of what? Eternal fire. Now, now, this is where the confusion comes in for many people. They read eternal fire, and they think that there's an eternal suffering going on. But at the same time, the Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of those who, punish, uh, who receive the punishment of eternal fire. Let me ask you a very simple question. Sodom and Gomorrah, is it still burning today? No. So it did burn in the past, right? God did pour out his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire came down from heaven. You remember the story. Lot was saved out of the city. Fire came down. It destroyed the city. But now it is no longer burning. So what does it then mean, this, this eternal fire? Now, let's go on to read here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then what is that everlasting fire? Listen very carefully. Everlasting fire is an everlasting punishment. And an everlasting punishment is a punishment which has an effect lasting forever. In other words, very simply, the Bible talks about an eternal punishment, but not an eternal punishing. Do you, do you recognize the difference there? In other words, when it says eternal fire, the consequences of the judgment of God are eternal. There's no turning back. Those that are righteous will be righteous. Those that are wicked will be wicked. God's judgment will fall. And there's no like after that, like, hey, wait a minute, I, I can still go there. Or, hey, wait a minute, I can still go. No. The results are eternal, but not the punishing is not eternal. The punishment has eternal results. It's eternal fire, but it's not a punishing that is continuing eternally. Now, to make that clear, this verse, I think, really helps. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27. And, and, and look at what it says. And this was basically uh, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah to the people of God. And remember the people of God, uh, during the days of Jeremiah, they had really gone astray from the Lord, and they were following after all these other gods and go uh, of the nations around them. And they neglected the word of God and the revelations of God. And so God says, you know, if they don't turn away from their wicked ways, then judgment will come. And he says it this way. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy, in other words, we're walking away from the commandments of God, by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be, what does it say? Quenched. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, 
if you continue to walk contrary to my law, the consequences of that is going to be a fire that will not be quenched. And, and it talks about the gates of Jerusalem and the palaces on fire that will not be quenched. Now, is the gate of Jerusalem burning today? No. So what does it mean with a fire that cannot be quenched? It is a judgment that cannot be overthrown because it's a judgment of God. It's a judgment that is irreversible. That it has a lasting effect, an everlasting effect. Forever in the Bible can be translated until the end of the age. It's like the match. You light the match, how long is it going to burn? Well, forever. Forever until there's nothing more to burn. <laughs> until the end of the match is reached. Right? So yes, there is a place that is hell. Yes, the, and, and, and it's not right now. It is a destruction at the end of time. It's a destruction of sin. And sinners that have hold, held on to sin will be destroyed with it. It is a fire coming down from heaven that destroys, and the consequences are forever, but the punishing is not forever. If that makes sense, say amen. That makes sense? The Bible is pretty clear. Now, again, then how did this come in, this idea that people are actually burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Um, John Stott, foremost Anglican theologian, I quoted this guy in our first presentation when we dealt with the state of the dead. And this is so connected, these two understandings of what happens when a person dies and hell are very connected. That's why I decided to have these studies together this evening so we can see the connection between the two. He says the following regarding uh, the concept or the belief of, of the eternal hell. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, and is, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh and to open our minds, not just our hearts, to the possibility that scripture points in the direction of annihilation and that the doctrine of eternal conscious torture has to yield to the supreme authority of scripture. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal, for the immortality and therefore the indestructibility of the soul is a Greek, not a biblical concept. Now, let's see if, you're, if we're all tracking with this. This clicker, for a moment, okay? We're just going to use this illustration. This clicker is a soul or a, you know, a, a human being, right? Now, according to our first presentation... There are two understandings that are really out there. And the understanding is, is the soul immortal or is it, immortal? Uh, is it mortal or immortal, right? According to the Bible, the, script, the scriptures teach that the soul is what? Mortal, but it puts on immortality when Christ comes. The Greek concept that has crept into Christianity is the idea that the soul is immortal, that it cannot die. Remember anthropological dualism. It's really dualistic. The body is, is just a prison house of the spirit, and once the person dies, the spirit will continue to exist forever and ever. Now, if that's what you believe about the soul, that it's immortal, now, this pulpit here is hell, okay? So just go along with this illustration. A soul, hell. We be, if the Greeks and also many Christians today believe that the soul is immortal, if you put an immortal soul into hell, how long is it going to burn? Forever. Because it's immortal. It cannot die. So, so if you put it in hell, then how long is hell going to be? Forever. Right? You see how these two teachings, they are interconnected with each other? Now, if you believe 
that the soul is mortal, then hell is not going to last forever. That's going to destroy, right? And do away with sin and the sinner. It's going to be eradicated from this universe. So very closely connected, these two teachings with each other. And again, it's a Greek concept that has found its way into the church. And especially Greek philosophers, again, like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they have popularized this, this teaching of um, the soul being immortal. And this has really made its way into the church. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, the Bible says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And listen to what, what the Lord says. The soul who sins shall die. Now, when many times when we hear about soul, there's such a misunderstanding of what the soul actually is. Because for many, the soul is kind of this floaty ghost inside of us. And that, and that when we die, our soul is going to rise and soar into the heavens and eternally be there in the bliss of heavens. And we're kind of like this ghost-like figure. We don't have a body, but we're just a soul inside. My friends, that is Greek philosophy. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a human being, when they were first created, were from the dust of the earth, the body, and the breath of God, the life-giving force of God, and that was a living soul. When you separate those two, there is nothing. There's no conscious form of life. And that's why we are resting in the grave until the second coming of Christ. And when Christ comes again, again, he unites the life-giving force with the dust of the earth, the, the body. And it began, again, you have life. Life does not, we do not exist outside of a body. And the Hebrew mind has always made that very clear throughout Scripture. We are one. You know, mind, body, soul, spirit, it's one. And that's so important for us to understand because even though, this, even though when Christ comes, we, the body will be changed, we'll get a much better body, but we still have a body. You know, and you know that you're going to enjoy heaven much more with a body. You know? This whole idea of this ghost-like, spirit-like soul that is separated from the body is not something you find in Scripture. It's something you find in ancient civilizations like the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. You find it in modern spiritism, but the Bible doesn't teach it. Now, I don't know where you want to be, but I want to be where the Bible is. Amen? And, and, and God has created us with the body. God has, God has created us, you know, the way that, that we can experience the joys of life. And, you know, it's interesting because this plays in also with the way that we treat our bodies. Because, you know, if our bodies... Um, as the Greeks literally taught and believed, the body is really just, you know, it's worth nothing. The body is not important because the soul inside of you is important. That's what they taught. So whatever you put into the body, or whatever, whatever, however you treat this body, doesn't really matter because it's only a prison house. And once you die, the prison house is going to be open and the soul will live forever. So just treat the body, you know, doesn't, don't, don't care about the body because the soul is everything. And so what this leads to is a very unbalanced way of life. Right? But if we want to come back to Scripture, we see that, yes, do you know what the Scripture says about this body? It says it's like the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Do you know that you are like a habitation for the Spirit of God to dwell in? I mean, God wants to dwell in us. He wants to come. And this body becomes very important. And do you know that in the Bible, the word soul is pointing to the body, everything combined, not just this, this ghost-like thing inside of us, the soul, according to Scripture, can die. 
Now, that, that really shakes the whole world of, of ancient civilizations, and it shakes the world of, of spiritism today. And yet, this is the biblical teaching on this very topic. Now, if there's any passage that really convinced me on this topic, and I, did, I didn't grow up believing this way, but when I really investigated Scripture, I came to this conclusion, and I, I came to see uh, that this totally made sense. And one verse that just really popped out and just made took on a whole new uh, you know, picture for me was John 3.16, which is kind of the, if, you, you know, if there's one verse you know in Scripture, it's usually this one, right? I mean, this is the very center of the gospel. John 3.16, we know it all, many of us know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, should what? Not perish, but what? Have eternal life. So there are two options here. Two options, only two options. You cannot create a third option. There are two options. Either you believe in him and you receive what? Eternal life. Or you don't believe in him and you perish. Now, very clear. Either you believe in him and you receive eternal life, or you don't believe in him and you perish. Now, my friends, the popular teaching today regarding hell is disregarding this verse because a person in hell, as it is understood today, largely, has eternal life. It's not a nice eternal life, but it is eternal life. So, because now sin is being perpetuated throughout eternity. Right? In hell, there, the sinners there continue to exist. They have received eternal life, but the Bible doesn't teach that. They will perish away with sin. Amen? And only those that believe in him will receive eternal life. Amen. And this is the gift that God has given to you and to me. I think I touched on this in an earlier presentation. When it came to this whole idea of eternal hell and fire and people being tortured even right now, you know, this was an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not trying to, you know, point out any... Uh, you know, people here, I'm talking about a system that has actually misrepresented the character of God in a major way through this very teaching. During the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, buying into the Greek philosophy of the age, um, actually devised certain teachings like purgatory, which you find nowhere in the Bible, and uh, eternal hellfire, and they actually used this to manipulate millions of people. A man by the name of Tessel traveled around Europe, and in order to raise funds to build the St. Peter's Basilica, he would tell the people that their loved ones were burning in hell even as he spoke. And he would actually graphically, with words, describe what they were going through in pain and torment. And then he would say that they were, or, yeah, he would t tell them that they're in purgatory, and purgatory is a place of cleansing, and they're cleansed with fire, they're burning with fire. But if the people would only pay money to the church, if they would give money to the church, then he could actually, you know, pray a prayer, and they would go right from purgatory or hellfire right to the bliss of heaven. And so the people not having access to Scripture at that time because Scripture was only in the Latin language and the Church of Rome had put a law on banning the Bible from the common people and it could only be taught in Latin. So you would go to a service and you couldn't understand anything. Um, okay, well, the priest said it, so I guess it's true. You couldn't understand the Bible because it was not in the common language. The first person that tried to translate the Bible and did so successfully was John Wycliffe and they hated him for doing that. 
And so why? Because this Bible unmasks the deception of man. But at that time, okay, well, the priest says it, so let's give money. And he said when the, the, the moment the coin you know, tinkles in the bottom of the treasury, the soul is right out of purgatory into heaven. And, the, and this was, money was flowing into the church of Rome, and they built St. Peter's Basilica. That's the legacy, my friends, of the Dark Ages, of, the, um, of, of this manipulative system of worship that placed itself in the very place of God, and this is a legacy that Protestantism has bought into. Protestantism comes from the word protesting. Now, Martin Luther stood up and protested against um, the teachings of Rome on um, a work-based um, um, a work-based salvation. And so he says, you know, we are saved by grace alone. And, and Martin Luther stood up and he said, uh, sola scriptura, the word only. And, and this was a beautiful reformation, but it was only a reformation to a certain extent. The reformation had to continue. It's almost like you're traveling through a dark tunnel for a long time. And then you come out of that tunnel and there's suddenly the light is so bright that you almost cannot bear it. You just need to shield your eyes because you need to, you need to kind of adjust to the light. Have you ever experienced that? Or you wake up in the morning and suddenly that person that you maybe share the room with or, or, or your mom or your dad or your colleague or, or whoever you're, you know, you're sharing a home with it suddenly turns on the light. Now that is horrible. Have you ever, done, ever, ever someone done that to you? Like, turn off the light. It's too much. You need to adjust your eyes. The Reformation was a time in which they adjusted their eyes to the teachings and truth and light of the gospel and word of God. And so a little bit of light, a little bit of light, a little bit of more light. But sadly, a lot of people stopped where Luther stopped. And so Luther said, sola scriptura. Hey, great, we'll call ourselves Lutherans. And they stopped where Luther stopped. But my friends, the Reformation continued, and more men and women stood up, and they were rediscovering beautiful truths about the Bible. And my friends, one of those truths that a large degree Protestantism has not yet accepted is this very truth about hell. Largely, Protestantism has not protested against the dark picture that Rome has painted of God regarding hell. Many of them still believe it. And that's why it's so important for you and I to say, I want to be a real Protestant. I want to protest a system that has set itself up against God. And more than that, I want to go back to what Jesus taught. Amen? Also regarding this topic, because I don't want the name of God to be defamed by anyone that is teaching contrary to the revelations given in Scripture. So it's so important for us to go back to that and to know what Scripture teaches. I read this book a couple of years ago. Um, if you want to read a good story, that, uh, a good true story, this is an amazing book. It's called 50 Years in the Church of Rome by um, Charles Chinnicky, which was um, basically it describes the conversion of a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, he lived in the late 1800s and uh, is a remarkable story about he, how he grew up with a fear for God. He was afraid of God. He became a Roman Catholic priest, but sometimes he could just not sleep during the night. The pictures of hellfire the pictures of a God that was angry. He would, he would just pray to Mary to stand between him and God because Mary was the, the peacemaker, but God was an angry figure that, that wanted to destroy him. And so he pleaded for Mary's protection, and he pleaded to, for, for Mary to, 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 to intercede on his behalf, and he, and he describes this torment and fear that he went through for many, many years until he really picked up this, this word, the scriptures, the Bible, started reading it again and rediscovering who God really, really was and is and always has been. Amen? 
And, and, and this, this conversion story, it's really the story of many. And, and I pray that you and I may take Scripture as it is. Don't let the traditions of man dictate your understanding of the character of God. But take the Word of God, which is like a beautiful painting, and each page, each book, each chapter is another color in the wonderful portrayal, the wonderful picture, canvas of who God in reality is. Add colors to that canvas. Let it, let it stun you over and over again. Because the more you look at it, the more you behold it, the more you will see that God is really, really, really awesome. Amen? God is really good. I mean, wow, if this is true, hallelujah. Praise the name of Jesus. I mean, wow, this is a God that, that just that is not holding back from us, but is saying, this is who I am, and he reveals it over and over and over again. And you can be sure, my, my friends, that tonight no one is burning in hell right now. And hell was not a place designed for you or for me. It was designed for the devil and his angels. Amen? The Bible tells us it was designed for the devil and his angels. But you know what? There will be people that will follow in their footsteps because they will reject the invitation of love. And when sin is destroyed, they will be destroyed with it. But my friends, that doesn't need to be you. It doesn't need to be me. We can decide tonight that we put our hope in Christ Jesus and that through our faith in him, we can receive eternal life. What is the good news about hell? Because, you know, in Christianity today, there's a lot of bad news about hell. But there's some good news about hell. No one is burning there right now, according to Scripture. No one will burn eternally. Hell, my friend, is fair. Just think about it. Let, let me give you a little illustration here. Because this, this, this concept of hell, as it is taught in Christianity today, where it says, you know, eternal burning. Uh, if a person rejects God, they go to that place. Think about this. Hitler, which was responsible for millions and millions and millions of Jews losing their lives, you know, if he went to hell and is suffering in hell eternally, let's say someone thousands of years before Hitler, let's say, okay, let's take the first murderer in Scripture, Cain. He slew his brother. Okay, he goes to hell, is suffering thousands and thousands of years, and then Hitler is responsible for the death of millions, and he's cast into the same place and is suffering. It's not even, it doesn't even make sense, logically. You see where I'm going? So even the, the traditional concept of hell doesn't even make sense. It's not logical. It's not fair. God is fair. Amen? God knows exactly the intents of the heart of every single human being that's ever walked upon the face of this planet, and he will judge them accordingly in a fair way. We can know that God is fair. You don't have to be there. Praise the Lord. Jesus would rather go to hell for you than live in heaven without you. The beautiful thing, my friends, is that Jesus, when he died on the cross... He put himself in the very place of suffering so that you and I do not have to suffer. Amen? I mean, this is what, what just baffles me every time I read the gospel. I mean, every time I go back to this book and I read the story again and again and again, it just baffles me how that God is not somewhere in the corner of the universe uninterested in the affairs of human beings, but rather is a God that steps into the pain and suffering and he himself suffered in order for you and I to be set free. I mean, what, what a beautiful God. What, a, what an amazing heavenly father we have, amen? And this is the one that we can trust and put our confidence in tonight. God does not want you to be motivated by fear. God wants you to be motivated 
by love. And that love is demonstrated on the cross, and it's demonstrated in your very life right now. There are things maybe that you are going through, and even in the difficult moments of life, God is there. You've got to believe that. You've got to hold on to that. Sometimes you think, well, I'm going through difficulties. Maybe God is not there right now. But that's exactly when he's there. That's exactly when he's carrying you. You remember that, that poem of the, the, you know, the, the footprints in the sand? You know? And we wonder, hey, it's just my footprints right now. No, it's the footprints of Jesus, and he's carrying you. He's carrying you through those difficult moments. And you just hold on to him. Because those promises are true. Those promises will come to pass. Eternal life is yours by faith. But put your faith in him. Don't allow the things of this world to, to, to pull you away from the scriptures. Don't allow tradition or culture or philosophy to determine your understanding of God. Don't allow even popular Christianity to form that picture. But go back to the word of God for yourself, amen? And discover afresh what God is like. Find out for yourself what he wants to do in your life. He has a purpose and plan for every single one of us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.